Welcome to another Directions Mag podcast, co-hosted with our friends at Eurissa. Uh, greetings and welcome to another uh, Eurissa and Directions Magazine conversation. I'm Matt Gerke with Eurissa's Professional Education Committee, and joining me uh, to talk about uh, data management, data organization, and related topics is Jesus Delgado. Uh, data organization and management is something that all of us do in our GIS professional lives and probably something we could all improve. Uh, in some organizations, this is approached as data governance, uh, but how data is organized and managed has impacts ranging from accessibility and availability to how we work with others. Uh, so we'll continue our, our conversations on this topic and dive in and explore some examples uh, from uh, from some other uh, GIS perspectives. Uh, Jesus, can you tell us a little bit about your career and your encounters with data and GIS? Certainly. Uh, first of all, let me uh, thank you for the invite uh, to participate in um, this conversation. Um, my background, I have a bachelor's in marine science uh, and biology um, and a master's uh, in marine affairs and policy. And um, I also have a graduate certificate in uh, GIS um, that uh, I uh, obtained um, from the graduate certificate and, uh, program uh, out of the, uh, William & Mary, uh, sponsored by the Center for Geospatial Analysis, the CGA. Um, I have been working whew, since late 80s, 1987 or so. I, I did about 10 years of uh, research in red tide toxins. And for uh, 18 and a half years, almost 19 years, I worked as a uh, supervisor and a biologist for uh, the Division of Environmental Resources Management for Midate County. Sprinkled in there at some time, either before or after, uh, I did a couple of years of uh, teaching at uh, various levels from uh, elementary school to graduate school in natural sciences. Um, but primarily my GIS use was uh, while I was a supervisor with Miami-Dade County. Um, and they are actually uh, supervised some of the projects for the class one permitting uh, program, which is a coastal construction program. Uh, and also some disciplines in uh, marina operating permits, the annual marina operating permit program. I coordinated that for about 10 or so years. And uh, also was involved with the uh, Shoreline Development Review Committee. and um, reviewed and authorized plans for development as far as the coastal aspect of the projects were concerned. This is where the GIS came in. And uh, so when it comes to you know, visualizing and helping others visualize uh, the impacts of their proposed work, GIS was immediately recognized as a, as a key tool to be able to share that information. And the aspects of GIS management that I recognize that I needed to work more on and to be more proficient at. So that's what brought me to uh, William & Mary for uh, the certificate program there. And as of the past year, I've been very fortunate uh, to uh, serve as an adjunct lecturer uh, at William & Mary, uh, where I've been instructing the laboratory portion of the introduction to GIS, so what we call GIS 201. So it's a very rewarding experience and I'm really uh, enjoying my time there. 
Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us today and, and be, being uh, willing to talk about uh, some of these big questions about data organization and management uh, from from your different perspectives as, as a researcher, as, as an educator, uh, but also someone working in, in local government where uh, sometimes their the, the projects are multi-year, uh, sometimes the projects are are very uh, uh, short and condensed. Uh, but but there's also the role of GIS being part of the the the, the daily transactional work, the, the the daily workflow, where it's really not a a project with a defined start and end. It's it's just part of what we do all the time in, in terms of, of of how we use it in the organization or, or how we go about doing our jobs. So I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, uh, some of the uh, directions that, that we can take in this in this conversation. So is organization and management of data and files uh, the lowest common denominator of, of GIS, or are there variants of good practices in in different sectors? Uh, I I do believe that data management and organization uh, do. Uh, represent a common denominator in as much as they are all essential uh, skills uh, in order to be able to reach a, a successful completion of a project. Um, I also recognize that these different practices uh, of data management and organization tend to vary um, from agency to agency. Um, for instance, from my experience with government work, um, a lot of them are dependent on the methods of data acquisition and, again, best management practices. Some of the practices are driven by standard oper uh, operating procedures um, that uh, they involve chains of custody and procuring information that might be uh, evidentiary um, elements or that may be defensible in court. And any and all of those aspects of evidence or data that has been gathered in the field may very well end up being part of uh, a feature class as particular attributes, something that could be visualized and, and best conveyed uh, via a GIS. So from that perspective, you can see how uh, data organization and, and uh, data management become uh, primordials as an imperative uh, management skill. Uh, the various does exist between the various various sectors uh, or various uh, stakeholders that might be invo involved. And sometimes I think this could be uh, an obstacle to clear communication. At times, the variance may be based on the level of training that different individuals within various groups have received. Not everyone is a certified GIS analyst. And uh, not everyone needs to be in order to be able to participate a, a, in a research group uh, for geospatial analyses. Minimal information and a basic understanding, basic knowledge definitely uh, come in to help so that we have a common language uh, and that is understood amongst all parties. But I think that uh, one of the primary uh, things that need to exist is that we need to maintain a a, a common best management practice uh, agreement, best, best management practices that are accepted uh, and acknowledged among cooperating agencies or stakeholders or research partners. Um, these are practices that we essentially 
share with the public to ensure transparency. Um, and as a research group, you may draft your own uh, set of best management practices or BMPs. You can share to then, sorry, you can draft your own to then share, or you can adopt uh, a partner agency's practices if you acknowledge that those are uh, sound practices that benefit your organization. Um, you, you can present your drafts uh, for your peers or, or your partners in research for their review and approval. And once you obtain that approval and, and vetted um, standard operating procedure, if you would, you could publish those best management practices. So everyone in the group is aware of what the common BMPs are. And, and I think this helps a lot from a public agency perspective. Um, all the information is subject to production under a public records request. And uh, even the best management practices that one has used for the GIS project uh, would become responsive records to that public request. So having clear, published, transparent transactions and uh, best management practices helps to minimize critiques. And, and it's also um, it allows uh, the research to withstand uh, auditing uh, or scrutiny. You know, sometimes when you're working with other agencies, you're in a position of compromising. Um, but I mean, you're compromising as a certain methodology so long as it does not compromise the quality or the integrity of the data, I do believe. So in a nutshell, Yes, I think they've become a common denominator denominator of GIS practice, but uh, we need to be very certain that the best management procedures are understood and followed by uh, all the agencies that are cooperating in one same project. That's a great point that in, in research or in government, when there's a reliance on the research or there, there is a degree of, of, of accountability uh, for public bodies that basing decisions and practices on standard operating procedures or a, a policy that guides how to do things is, is a, really a bedrock of, of, of how some of these things get done in, in the real world. Absolutely. Uh, but but if, if, if we, we, we start there and, and, and kind of jump back, you know, the, 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 the building blocks of the process really are how we start thinking about data organization when, when we're, we're learning these things and, and we're learning GIS and, and we're starting to le learn the tools and techniques that we may use in those research or government environments down the road. So if, if that's where, where we are professionally, when your GIS class starts at the beginning of the semester, and it's intro GIS and, and, and your students really haven't worked with the, the data or the folders or the file structure. How do you explain data organization and management to your students and, and the importance of it? Well, I bring it in um, trying to give them a, a sense of how important data is. And in my mind, and I share this with the students, data is very much like a, a treasure. And when you're searching for data, um, you're essentially on a treasure hunt. You're looking for those valuable bits and pieces of information that will become the backbone of your research. Um, so we touch on different points to make certain that what students have in fact found is treasure. 
is in fact data, data that meets uh, a, a standard of reliability, data that comes from a, a, a reliable source, a responsible source, um, and that we understand that this data is, I mean, the, the point and the purpose of the data, is, is it a, an objective, uh, objective uh, foundation is an objective truth. Is there? Is it based on on you know vetted methods of analyses, um, it, or is the data nuanced? Is does the data have a purpose? Is it being understood or manipulated or presented in such a way that is intended to drive a message, um, or whether this is just black and white, plain? data this are exactly the results that we obtained there is no nuance or personal interest in providing it one way or the other um, and does it come from a legitimate source then considering that you have now gone out of your way to locate this treasure now you need to guard that treasure but you're not going to be like a pirate you're not going to go out there and bury it and then make sure you dispose of all those people that helped you bury it so nobody else knows where it is is a different type of treasure. This data you actually want to make sure that you preserve so others can actually use it as well. So in as much as you want to preserve its integrity, the exercises that we go through with the students uh, involved in understanding what a secure location for your data might be uh, and uh, maintaining that primary secure location so that your original data goes there and you're working as you're manipulating data, not on the original, but on the copies. You can make copies of that original data. That is what you play with. That is what could actually go through an error. Um, and you're not really losing your original data. That is being guarded somewhere else. That's one file or one file folder that uh, does not get played with. Now, to that end, uh, we go through teaching the students. We teach them how to create a folder structure that will help them organize this data because they can have it but they will not know where to put it or once they have placed data in different uh, folders they will not know what happened to that data so you need to keep track of where your data has gone and creating a folder structure uh, that we can share with the students as a best management practice or, or as a best uh, standing operating procedure it just becomes a habit um, and uh, they can start their project and maintain that data uh, in an organized, cohesive way where the data can be accessed and not lost. And with time, students tend to develop their, their own uh, methodology, but at the beginning, you know, I do encourage them, okay, here's the, fol the folder structure that I have set up for my projects. I encourage you to understand the logic within it and to use this as your backbone for data management. As you or as you're talking with your students about setting up that file structure uh, in files and folders and folders of folders, uh, are there any naming conventions that, that you found particularly useful or um, not useful uh, over your career? Oh, absolutely. Yes, without a doubt. Um, well, there are a number of things that come into play. So if we touch on folder structure, um, uh, let me talk about a little bit about that for a second. Um, 
when it comes to the project itself, essentially, I, I'd like to organize it uh, as a, a system, a, a main folder, a primary folder, if you would, that's the one that bears the name of my project. And then within that primary folder, I have subfolders, each one identifying the type of file that I am keeping within it, with the idea that you know I tend to keep like items together. And so I have a, a very short name for uh, a folder named docs for my documents, obviously. Uh, one for data, one is probably labeled IMG for images. Um, I could probably have one for FP for my final products. And then my miscellaneous folder typically is just MISC for miscellaneous. What I keep in there logically, I mean, my documents, I, I keep procedure documents, you know, which is essentially a log of actions uh, or, or comments that I have as I have uh, proceeded through my GIS uh, project. Uh, I enter there my good notes, my bad notes, what worked, what didn't work, how I solved it. Uh, I do screen captures um, to essentially summarize an, a number of different steps. Uh, it's a lot easier to capture a screen and drop it into my document as an image. Uh, say, for instance, I am working on a, a, a geo process. I am doing a spatial join. And, and as compared to writing line by line uh, what different layers I used and, and, and how they were placed within the geospatial tool in the application, I can just drop in that image. And that will tell the thousand words, uh, and that will actually save me time. Um, I also have within documents any standard operating procedures uh, that my research group might be following, a, a, a document for sources that would let me know where I obtained what piece of information, what piece of data, um, any deliverable documents. It could actually contain some of the timelines that I need to maintain to produce uh, um, to generate products on a given timeline. Um, I have another folder for data, one for images that would include not only layouts, but any other kind of image that I would like to use for presentations, uh, logos of different groups or agencies that we uh, that happen to be working together. My final projects folder typically includes uh, maps or any story map links or anything that I have ready to be published. And in miscellaneous, I pretty much put whatever else I don't know where to put it at, I can put it in the miscellaneous. Um, I also, and I learned from one of my professors at William & Mary, um, the miscellaneous is a very good place to put in any kind of zip file that I download. And that tends to keep it as an archive of my original clean data there. Now, you mentioned names, and, and I do believe this is the crux right here. Names are very picky, as we know, when it comes to GIS, or the other way around. The applications tend to be uh, rather picky when it comes to naming. So when uh, teaching, I pretty much emphasize to the students, like, look, you don't want to use any special characters. Uh, on your uh, on your naming convention, and try to keep your names short. So I recommend that you keep in less than 13 or so characters. So instead of writing uh, the name of a folder as uh, documents or images or final product, I just use an abbreviation that would be clear, not just to me, but to other folks that might be using uh, the folder structure. 
Um, so do not include any spaces in, in your names or use name uh, numbers to start uh, your file uh, names. And if you're working on producing different versions of your data, I let's say for instance, I am joining two tables of attributes. Uh, I, I don't want to name this join one and my next layer, I want to name it join two. Um, because these are not descriptive names. When I come back to it, you know, it is very likely that I will not remember what join was, join one, join two. I mentioned to the students that it's best to use a meaningful name. So instead of, you know, doing a join that may say a research area projected, or actually, no, actually, if I reproject my research area, as compared to saying research and labeling that new layer research area two, I want to make sure that the name reflects the operation that generated that new uh, data layer. So I could name it research area reprojected as compared to research area two. Likewise, following on the example of doing a spatial join or or an attribute join uh, i could call it sj for special join underscore park roads to park boundaries where i can understand the the initials represent the geoprocess uh, technique that was employed and then the two uh, names of the layers that were joined together and I'll tend to include in there as clearly as I can and as short a name as I can, which data set was joined to which. And then I recommend by all means, store your data layers within your geospatial database. The geospatial database, it, it, it's a, a great strategy in as much as it, not only does it keep all your data organized within the uh, geospatial application, um, but it makes it so much quicker to access. Uh, and, uh, you know, the system knows where to go, retrieve the information, it minimizes your time and effort. Um, so if you are working on a research team, you know, I recommend selecting a simple and clear data organization system. You can create this as a business rule or a best management practice for your research team, and you wanna share that with the team and any agency uh, members uh, or any collaborating agencies that you are working with, whether it be the county or the state or the federal government, for instance, and that everyone acknowledges that you're going to adhere to this uh, file organization system or best management practices. So everyone is aware of what the data looks like and where it is stored. And then you save your project, you save it often. Um, when it comes to the students, we try to create this habit from their very first project. And we kind of, I mean, I tend to let them make, mis make mistakes so that they can go back and identify where the thing went off the rails. And I can just let them know, it's okay, your data join is not working because you, are trying to store this in a file folder that includes spaces. 
and that may very well be the thing that is throwing you off. Try to see if you can solve it, delete that space, see if it works now. Oftentimes, a couple of mistakes um, are made, but you know, after that, the students learn rather quickly how to work with best management techniques. So one of the things you touched on is versions of projects. Uh, and, and I know in, in longer term projects or even you know, uh, uh, student projects, you, you want to save and you want to save early and you want to save often, but you, you may not completely finish everything in, in, in one setting. It may be a, a multiple day project. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm curious you know, how you have the conversation about backup strategies. Because as soon as we save the project and, and we save the data, you know, we, we can pick up and go and leave. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's always that chance that something happens to that. And, and if, if we don't have a backup, uh, it, it can be uh, definitely stressful uh, for, for students. And, and it's, it uh, probably causes a fair bit of anxiety for other, other GIS professionals. Uh, but, but do you talk about that with your students? And, and uh, if you do, what sort of, of suggestions or strategies or, or procedures do you recommend so that they not only have a organized manner of backing things up, uh, but they have confidence in, in knowing exactly what they have or what snapshots or data points that they have? Well, I, a couple of strategies come into, into play here. Um, one of them is when our students um, start working GIS, at least for the introductory to GIS, introduction to GIS course, they are working of, of um, instructions that we have set up for various activities. And, and these are the, the ones that we call labs. So for each one of the lab activities, we have it built in um, where after so many different uh, geo processes or steps, we have it written in there, save your project now. You may want to think about saving your project now. That as a way of creating a habit um, where the students start to, to get the notion that I have accomplished something along the way, uh, even if I'm just sitting at my terminal for an hour, two hours, I want to save maybe every 15 minutes, every 10 minutes, or definitely every time I accomplish a geo process that will serve as a foundation for the subsequent processes. Um, because I have managed a goal thus far, so I wanna save this. Um, so also, the, I think the primary responsibility for saving um, is, and the onus is on the cartographer or the researcher, or in this case, you know, the student. Um, you need to save, you're the primary line of defense, so to speak, against any glitches or, or, or any power outages, anything that may destroy your effort, so to speak. Um, so you want to save often. I know of at least one of my professors that would set up an egg timer. And this egg timer will go on every so often, maybe every 15 or so minutes. And that would be the reminder to uh, save them, you know, save the information. So even if something were to happen, um, you might only lose a very small portion of your progress. 
as a research group or as a class, I think that you want to set a, a, a practice whereby you, you save on a regular basis. You set up a, a calendar for backup of your computer's hard drive, if you would. Uh, you know that you save once a week or twice a week. Um, I know groups that save every night. And, and that is actually the research group itself as compared to the IT department within that agency. Uh, you also want to, I mean, so you don't want to leave it up to the IT group. IT might be backing up everybody's uh, progress um, from the different agencies. I know Miami-Dade County, we had at least 500 different employees and God only knows how many different groups working in various aspects of environmental resources management. Uh, the IT group backed everybody up. Um, but within the group I worked with, we took it upon ourselves to back up our information and our data uh, daily. Because even if it was left to IT to, to reproduce a, a lost uh, drive, for instance, you don't know how busy they are and how quickly they might be able to get to your issue and get you up and running again. So that may be a delay on uh, on productivity if it happens to be a business or or in the generation of projects or continuing projects um, for an agency. And, and it's definitely stressful, as you mentioned, for the students um, if they were to lose uh, all of their uh, progress. So. And to that end, uh, you know, having a redundant backup system where it is the individual that is backing up and is uh, aware of how often you need to save your process, uh, your progress, and you become aware, and, and essentially this becomes a habit. After you hit that one landmark step that you know is going to help you uh, carry on with the work uh, you want to save, if you encounter a glitch and you know what is the last step that worked you you want to save just make sure that you know oftentimes the gremlins make it so that um, you may have to shut down the entire application and then reboot uh, so you want to have save just before you do that uh, so you can solve your problems in, in from an agency's perspective i would say um, that you want to maintain an open line of communication with other groups that are researching in, in your agency and with your IT group. Um, and say, you know, know your IT, know who is out there, communicate with that personnel frequently. And I say personally, it's like, you know, more often than not, these days we kind of like send an email, pick up a phone and call someone. But if it is possible for you to walk down to the IT office and personally meet with them. So they get to know you, you get to know them and you establish this professional relationship. I think that that relationship that is rewarding in itself also translates in a good line of communication whereby your interests are shared and, and they feel it as, oh, I'm part of that group that Jesus is working with, and I want to make sure that the group is up and running. Um, and you understand their delays and, and the obstacles they might be facing. And likewise, they understand yours. Um, the nutshell that I would say is save, save often, save now. It's not my mantra. I have inherited that uh, from uh, my professors. 
and I will continue to pass that one along to my students. So through our, our conversation, we, we've had examples of, of teaching and research, uh, but also the, the work environment. Uh, and I, I, I think you make a really good point when you, you talk about, you know, it's, it's not just these people that have these jobs that we rely on. It's also the communication and building and developing the relationships. Uh, because in, in many cases, our, our problems or challenges are, you know, they, they may be technical, but, but we, we tend to rely on others to help us with those or, or figure things out, mm -hmm. you know, both in terms of uh, our professional work environment as well as uh, learning from others or, or teaching others. Uh, so as, as educators, we find ourselves explaining technical concepts in, in easy-to-understand ways. Um, and the majority of GIS professionals in the United States uh, do so in English. Uh, but mm -hmm. we may also be working with people where the native language or spoken language is, is not English. Um, could you talk about your experiences explaining GIS concepts, uh, if it's uh, data management or file management or, or, or other concepts, uh, to others with the background in, in other languages? Has that been a barrier, or, or what, what strategies uh, have, have come up to, to work through approaching, approaching a, a common thing from different experiences? And, and you, you touch on something uh, uh, very interesting, which is both challenging and, and rewarding at the same time. Um, yes, most of the work that we do in the United States in GIS, logically, it is in English. Um, but we do have a, a varied and very rich uh, community uh, of GIS analysts. And oftentimes the, the thought pattern or, or the idea behind visualizing data um, is it's nuanced or it's driven by the idiosyncrasy of uh, the various communities. So I say it's challenging and, and rewarding because uh, conveying the the management uh, for the data or, or the various strategies to help visualize this data or analyses that must be performed on the data it demands a bit of creativity uh, and imagination um, and, and it is very rewarding when you get the sense that you were able uh, and you succeeded in, in conveying not necessarily just the meaning or the outcome but the nuance uh, that could help this uh, the individual or the, or the cartographer or the analyst uh, reach the, the next step on, on their own. Uh, in a sense, uh, I feel that it enhances my ability uh, to communicate and to convey the, the idea in, in, in a different language. Um, and I think it assists the individual who is listening to me because they get to understand um, the process um, in a different way. I think that it also makes them more flexible. Uh, oftentimes, I think that um, I usually look for an example that I can put together, uh, and that is an example that could be either you know, relatable to either the audience or the classroom. Um, at times, there is no direct translation, for instance. And uh, I think that a, a knowledge of the actual geo process 
that you're trying to explain is needed so that you can convey the goal of the geo process in a different way. So, as I mentioned, the, the cultures and the languages are very rich, but they're also very adaptable. So, in the practice of GIS, what I've seen is that um, the different languages, languages other than English, you know, and we do it in English as well, but we adopt words for which no immediate translation exists. Um, say, for instance, the majority of my experience is in, in, in Spanish. Um, so, for instance, in Spanish, I don't recall if we have a, a word for flash, like the flash in your camera. But if you talk to anyone in Spanish about a camera flash, you don't have to mention the word flash, they know what it is. So oftentimes then, while some words are adopted and they understood, you know, it's like that is not a word that I regularly use, but it is understood. I have adopted it into my understanding of what the process is supposed to be. And regardless of what it is labeled, I know how to use it. So if you find that one common ground, uh, you can evolve an example from there on how to say, for instance, do a join or, or to uh, establish a, 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 flat, a, a buffer. Let's take, for instance, the concept of buffering. Um, if I speak to you know, any English speaking a GIS analyst about generating a buffer about a point or, about a, or around the line, uh, we understand what it is. For me to explain that in Spanish, I would have a hard time explaining to the Spanish speaker uh, audience that I, or the student, that I, I want the student to generate a buffer. Uh, I would probably have to use a combination of words, and this is something else that comes into play. So instead of re referring to it as a buffer, I could address what the buffer does. And the buffer essentially creates an area within a perimeter. And I, I could identify that process as the process generates uh, an area under a perimeter. Some folks may refer this uh, to this as a halo, um, but you know I would rather not use halo in as much as they may want to use halo uh, to represent buffers but we know for instance when it comes to labels that we do use a halo as a label um, but i would tend to identify for instance uh, a buffer as uh, uh, an area within a perimeter surrounding a particular feature of interest and incidentally when it came to labeling something uh, where the halo i would actually use uh, the word for uh, reflejo, reflejo would be more akin to a uh, uh, a reflection. So essentially, re you're reflecting a little bit of that uh, um, type, font type that you have used for uh, the label itself. So it is challenging, uh, but it's also very interesting. Uh, all the the nuances, you know, some mm -hmm. folks some folks refer to the tab. Uh, even the contextual tabs that appear on the ribbon on top of RGS Pro, yeah. they call them pestañas, which are typically eyelashes, but they give you the idea of this is a little tab on top. Uh, others call it lengüetas or they call it etiquetas. And you know what? I'll take the first two. I'll take pestañas or lengüeta, though I favor pestañas. Well, neither one. Etiqueta is actually label. 
So I would rather not use label if I'm going to be using label for putting names on features of interest on a map because those are labels and those are etiquetas. So I definitely have a word that fits that. So, uh, okay, so tabs are pestañas uh, and I wanna mm. keep it that way. I think that the when it comes to the use of the software, the primarily what we uh, have employed in, um, in the CGA at William & Mary, we, we use a lot of the ESRI products because of the the versatility and ease of use uh, when it comes to sharing GIS concepts with students, that, that platform lends itself very well for it. Um, and I have seen the platform in different languages. Um, and by and large, uh, it works. There's a couple of items um, that are somewhat nuanced uh, that, that I would say it still needs to be uh, polished or improved upon, but by and large, it works. So in, in terms of talking about, you know, the, the, the software interfaces, uh, it, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, if, if, if we're trying to explain a concept to somebody that comes from a, a, a different language background or different vocabulary, and we have these real technical things, you know, that, that we, we can explain the concept and then, hey, here's a label here like buffer that, 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 that's, that, we, we, we have this label, but, but we can kind of explain the concept behind it. And then we get in the tool, we get in the software interface, and, and, and we're, we're clicking on this button that says buffer. Um, in, in your experience and working with different language settings, you know, are, are those translations of, you know, buffer from English to Spanish or another language interface that you're working in, you know, fairly accurate and, and helpful? Or do those sorts of translations within the software interface uh, raise challenges and in, in, in connecting you know, these concepts that you're explaining to uh, the buttons or the commands that you'd have to work with in the software? I think that the effort that's been put together uh, by, uh, for instance, the ESRI group and uh, doing their translation, say, in RGS Pro into Spanish, I think the effort is rather good. Um, the, the, the translation of the various tools um, are logical, and I think that they can be followed. Um, some issues still remain, um, for instance, uh, the naming conventions, you know, naming conventions work, uh, and either they can be generally accepted or adopted or understood in Spanish. Um, all the nuances of that necessarily, uh, they don't necessarily work for all regions, um, in as much as, you know, the, say for instance, the, the Spanish-speaking uh, countries around the Caribbean basin, um, you could refer I mean, there's different words that are being used around the Caribbean basin uh, uh, to describe particular items or objects that you would not use in the southern portions of South America. Um, so, you know, when it comes to, you know, what backpack might be in Colombia or Venezuela would not be the same word that we would use to describe a backpack in uh, Mexico, for instance. Uh, so there truly isn't 
and I cannot say that there is a an all-encompassing uh, way of translating um, RJS Pro to Spanish, for instance, that will satisfy everyone. I think that all the users uh, of JS in Spanish uh, they need to have a certain level of acceptability to to understand. Oh, okay, this is what they are referring to, uh, and then the user needs to essentially be clear as to how things are translated. Um, give you an example. Uh, if you were using now, okay, when it when it comes to uh, defaults. Oftentimes, the geoprocesses uh, or the, say a choices for symbology, they provide you, the, the system provides you with uh, defaults. And, and a lot of ways which I've heard the term default referred to in Spanish, they use the word defectos. Defectos, in fact, in Spanish means defects. And it is not what you want to say here. Uh, I would not use the word defect to, or defecto, pardon me, to, to identify with default. Uh, I think that a better term for that would be a, a, a predeterminado or predeterminada, which essentially means to a predetermined entry. Uh, so this is something that has been already provided for you, but it, it is very, uh, it's tempting to say, I will come up with the word in Spanish that is very close to the word default in English, and would just say defectus because it kind of sounds somewhat similar, but in fact means something entirely different. So my concern is that uh, the practice may continue, and folks that actually are using defectos to refer to uh, defaults would essentially adopt that as a term, as an accepted term, and it is in fact, in my opinion, not the proper term to use for that. Um, there, there is a group, um, pretty much that just pretty much says that you, you really should go on with trying to use the interface in English. Um, on the one hand, I think that th they are looking at it from the personal growth perspective um, and that uh, it also will enhance that cartographer so that analyst's ability to work in a different language. Um, so it has its challenges, but uh, definitely something that one can adapt to. You know, incidentally, now that we're talking about that and we have been talking about naming conventions, um, when it comes to naming files, and you know how we don't use numbers uh, to start the file with or spaces or special characters, there are characters in Spanish that like, like the ñe, which is the N with the little tilde on top, um, or the U with two dots on top, um, that actually is used regularly in Spanish, but they used to generate errors. I'm not sure what the latest versions do with it now, but uh, certain letters or characters that would normally be accepted in Spanish are not necessarily accepted uh, in English or actually in the software that is understanding everything you enter as in English. So I don't know, but I found that or I recognize that one's another curious detail.
uh, to think about or keep in mind. Wow, we've talked through many different examples today from a number of different perspectives. Uh, do you have any other uh, heads up about curious little gremlins uh, lurking in, uh, in the software or how we think about using it or how we understand how we use it or any final tips, tricks, or strategies uh, to share uh, from your experiences working, uh, working with and teaching GIS? think that regardless of language, um, the, the practice uh, of analyses and the way in which we go about it, uh, it it's, a, it's a common cause, so to speak. Uh, it, it makes no difference what language you're speaking. Ultimately, we're all speaking a, a GIS analyst uh, language. And, and that comes in my mind with a number of practices. You know, uh, I would recommend definitely that um, a, a GIS analysts maintain a process document and that in that document, you enter the good days and the bad days you will be helping others. I mean, should you win the lottery today and leave your research group and somebody else come in uh, to take your seat, you would be leaving a gift for that individual if you have a process document with the good and the bad, that that person would know uh, what mistakes not to make because you made them and you recorded it in there and you left it as a legacy for the next individual to say, don't do this. Uh, I did it. Uh, and you're writing for somebody else's eyes. And, and, and that one actually comes in from my background uh, in working in, in marine biology and working out on boats that pretty much says there, there is no hardware store nearby uh, to, to go get a spare part and you prepare yourself for everything. So you write a, a comprehensive, understandable log uh, that you can hand off to someone else down the line. Now, I would also say that you want to maintain a time log, even as a student, um, that that will help you visualize where your time has gone uh, and how much effort you have put into a particular part of the project. Uh, it also helps to track uh, efficiency or let you know how effective you have been. It, it lets you know whether you have taken too much time or, uh, analyzing a project. Sometimes you have to step away from uh, the interface um, and then return to look at it with fresh eyes. Um, so a time log does help. I mean, it helps you with billing if you're working for a, uh, a, a private uh, interest. And I, I think it also helps you uh, maintain, uh, help manage your effort and manage your sanity. Um, I would say definitely understand what the best management practices are for organization and data management. Um, Though those are extremely important when it comes to being able to work in, in a group in a, a, a seamless fashion. Um, if you are working with uh, a group, you know, I wouldn't, I mean, I recommend to the students, and, and one of our final projects involves a uh, work group for them. Some of them are looking forward to working in a group, some, I tell you, are definitely not working, looking forward to working in a group. But it is, it's rare for any one professional to work in isolation these days. 
you are part of a group more often than not and whether you like it or not and i think that group work is a great experience and a great opportunity for students right now so i share with them is like understand when this data is your data or the group's data or the agency's data don't necessarily be married to your data that you are the protector and nobody else touches this data unless you happen to be the data manager the gis manager um, that is responsible for ensuring the quality control of that data more often than not you maintain control over the last uh over the yeah the, the final product and the access to that data but you know if you're a member of a group and you're working together uh with other analysts you know you, you want to be receptive to alternate points of view they may have different ways of solving a problem or, or to display the data um and you know when i when i receive input from uh colleagues you just i just tend to not look at it as uh, a challenge uh, i interpret it as a you know positive commentary and suggestion um, try to be open to new alternative uh, and new methods um, in in reality, regardless of how much time you have been uh, working in GIS. We're essentially all learning GIS, and and I think it's it's a it's a process of improvement as you make your way through in that career. Um, so, as far as being able to suggest. Um, to students or other professionals from my experience. I think that those are uh, the more important, more salient points that I could recall. Maintain transparency. That is that is one key aspect, I think, very valuable when it comes to working for uh, uh, an, a public agency, uh, whereby you know everything that is being done by the group stands uh, scrutiny. And, and from a scientific uh, point of view, I mean, you want to be able to have others uh, validate uh, your data. You want peers to take a look at what you've done and understand clearly how you got uh, to the end point and why you're representing the data the way you are and what the message is. And you want that research to stand scrutiny as well. I think that is a, a good message to provide with students today that are going to become those uh, future researchers and GIS analysts. Well, thank you uh, for joining us today for this conversation and uh, sharing sharing your thoughts from your experiences working in government, working in research, and, and working as an educator uh, about some of these uh, strategies and challenges that uh, no matter uh, the type of GIS work that we do, uh, we have. Uh, if it's with language, if it's with organization, if it's with uh, with working with others, uh, uh, plenty of good uh, uh, talking points and perspectives. So thank you so much for your time and uh, sharing your experience with us. Oh, likewise, it's my pleasure to visit with you today and have this yeah, very interesting conversation. Uh, you know, I think that all these points are a reality for GIS and in, in, in teaching and. Uh, and also in public service. And I think they're always an opportunity for improvement, continued improvement. So again, my pleasure. Thank you very much for your time.